When you think of traveling to Europe, you envision floating down a Venice canal or strolling through a London museum or sipping coffee at a Paris cafe. But when Paul arrived in Europe, he had but one priority. He wanted to lead the lost masses to faith in Jesus. At the time, the continent of Europe was drowning in a sea of idolatry and paganism and on its way to hell. But in Acts chapter 16, the world changed. Paul was in Troas when he saw a vision. A man from Macedonia, an Eastern European, called for his help. Paul responded and he sailed the Aegean. The gospel moved from Asia to Europe. The first Christians were Africans and Asians. Now the Europeans joined God's family. And over the next 1,800 years, Europe will be the hub of Christian activity. For a 1,000 years, Rome was Christianity's headquarters until the seeds of Reformation began to sprout up everywhere. For a time, Wittenberg and Zurich and Geneva were cities on a hill. By the 19th century, England was the center of the modern missionary movement. But it all began in 50 AD when Paul blazed the trail onto European soil and began to share the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, Paul goes to Philippi. Now in Acts chapter 17, he's back on the move. Verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. In one sentence here, Paul travels 100 miles. He goes from Philippi to Thessalonica. The Greek city was founded around 300 BC. Thessalonica was named after the sister of Alexander the Great. It was a busy city and a commercial center. In fact, there was a famous Roman road, the Via Ignatia, that ran from the Balkan Peninsula across Asia into Europe, connecting the two, the trade route that ran through the city of Thessalonica and formed its main street is the main street of the city today. And Paul figured that if the gospel caught on in Thessalonica, then it would spread throughout Greece and Macedonia. And so he came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now in Romans chapter 11, Paul is going to call himself the apostle to the Gentiles. But he always went first to the Jews. And here he visits the synagogue. He goes there three weeks in a row and he reasons from the Scriptures. Paul continued explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying... This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Of course, the word Christ is the, Hebrew, or is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. The Jewish rabbis, they read in the Old Testament that Messiah would come, that he would suffer, and that he would reign. And yet it perplexed them trying to reconcile both scenarios in the same person. How can someone suffer and yet reign at the same time? Some rabbis suggested that there were actually two messiahs. There was Messiah ben Joseph, or the son of Joseph, who would suffer as his namesake did in Egypt, whereas Messiah ben David, or the son of David, like his father, would reign as king over Israel. 
Well, Paul explained from the scripture that there was only one Messiah. Both prophecies were fulfilled in a single person, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus suffered on the cross, but he rose to glory, and he'll come again to rule the nations. Jesus is the Messiah who both suffers and reigns. Then verse 4, he says, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews were not persuaded, becoming envious. The Jews were stubborn. Notice the Jews didn't oppose Paul on theological grounds. They were just jealous. You know, today, Judaism has largely lost its missionary zeal. Judaism is sort of a live and let live kind of attitude. But in the first century, the Jews of the diaspora, or the Jews in Gentile lands, they eagerly tried to win over Gentile converts to Judaism. Here, to these jealous Jews, Paul's persuasiveness was an unwelcome competition. And so they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. The Jews, they hired thugs to inflame a mob and storm the house that Paul had occupied. But when they did not find them, Paul wasn't at home. They dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. Imagine this Jason. He's a longtime Thessalonian. He's just minding his own business, sitting there watching the TV, watching the dogs get beat by Alabama, crying and sobbing. When all of a sudden a mob storms the house and breaks down his front door and drags him through the streets to City Hall. And notice the mob was crying out. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Isn't it interesting that sometimes our greatest compliments come from our fiercest enemies? Notice here Paul's critics, his staunchest enemies, they admit that Paul had turned the whole world upside down for Jesus' sake. Have you noticed lately that this world is wrong side up? Have you noticed that? It calls evil good and good evil. It mocks the Savior and worships sin. People draw their breath from God, then they deny He even exists. This world is truly wrong side up. That's why, once again, we need to turn it topsy-turvy. Today, we need to shake things up for Jesus. Rather than blend in, you and I need to live out our faith. Notice in verse 7 here, the mob makes a formal accusation to the authorities. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Notice the Christians were accused of political treason against the Roman Caesar. And yet these men had misunderstood Christianity. Jesus was a king, but he's king over a spiritual, not a physical or political kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. The only coup d'etat the church has called for was a takeover of the human heart. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. In other words, Jason and his friends were released on bail. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. 
out of concern for his life, Paul was sent out of town under the cover of darkness. His entourage now traveled 60 miles west of Thessalonica to the little town of Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now, these Bereans, they were into truth. They sought the truth, even if it made them squirm, even if it challenged their prior beliefs. See, their question wasn't, do I like what I'm hearing? Or does this sound cool? Or how will it benefit me? Or was this what I was taught in my former church? No, the only question these Bereans were concerned about was, is this biblical? And we, too, need to be Bereans. We need to check out all teaching. Is it true to the Word of God? You know, even sincere pastors make mistakes. Check out what's taught, regardless of who's teaching. A pastor does have a responsibility to be accurate, but it goes both ways. People also need to be sure that what he teaches is biblical. If I'm in error, you're in danger. We need to be Bereans and search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. And then he says in verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. This happened to Paul a lot. I mean, the Jews just wouldn't give it up. The Jews back up the road in Thessalonica. They were a militant bunch. It wasn't just enough to kick Paul out of their own town. They went on to hunting down. These Jews were like old underwear. They just kept creeping up on you. Then immediately, the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Apparently, Paul was the flashpoint. Wherever he went, he was the flashpoint. Here they get Paul out of town so that Timothy and Silas can quietly continue the work of discipling and teaching the new believers. And so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, it seems the plan here was for Paul to lay low for a few days. And then his pals rejoin him. But there was no such thing as laying low for the Apostle Paul. You need to know that. We're told, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Athens, Athens, Greece, was perhaps the most famous city of antiquity. It was the home to the Olympic Games, the great Acropolis, the huge Parthenon. It was also the birthplace of democracy as well as Greek philosophy. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle had originated theories there in Athens. At the time of Paul's visit, Athens was starting to be eclipsed by other prominent cities. Rome had become the military capital of the world. Alexandria in Egypt was the scientific and literary capital. Corinth, also in Greece, had become the commercial hub. But Athens remained the intellectual and the academic and the philosophical capital of the world. 
And Paul concluded there, in short order, in short time, he concluded the same as I concluded after dealing with a couple of my college professors. How can these folks be so smart and so dumb at the same time? I'll never forget this college professor I had. He didn't show up the first day of class because he thought it was on Tuesdays and Thursdays instead of Mondays and Wednesdays. And anyway, that was just the beginning. (laughs) How can these people be so smart and so dumb at the same time? For as Paul looked around at such beautiful and such a renowned city, he noticed that Athens was littered with countless temples and altars and idols. You know, Greek archaeologists estimate that there are over 3,000 shrines in ancient Athens dedicated to the various gods of the Greek pantheon. There were more idols in Athens than in all of Greece. There was a saying in the ancient world, in Athens it's easier to find a god than a man. Notice verse 17. Therefore, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Notice Paul wasn't content to just share the gospel in the synagogue, in the house of worship. No, the apostle went into the agora, into the secular, the local marketplace. And this is what we should be doing in our world today. We need to be taking God's word into the marketplace of ideas. We need to invade education and business and media and politics. Paul certainly didn't sit on his hands while people were dying and going to hell. He couldn't do that. Reminds me of D.L. Moody. One day he was walking down the street. A man was moving in the opposite direction. When Moody asked him, he said, friend, are you a Christian? The old grump snarled, mind your own business. And that's when D.L. Moody answered, sir, this is my business. And this is our business too. We should never get used to the sound of footsteps marching off to hell. Though Paul's plan in coming to Athens was to take a few days of R&R, when exposed to the paganism around him, he had to say something. Well, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Now, the word babbler, it means seed picker. It referred to a bum who would pick his food from the trash. These Athenian philosophers were mocking Paul. They were calling the gospel he preached garbage. And yet others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Paul proudly proclaimed the risen Lord Jesus. You know, American politics is a two-party system, as was Greek philosophy. But rather than Republicans and Democrats, Athens had the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were materialists and they were humanists. Their leader, Epicurus, lived between 341 and 270 B.C. He taught that the universe was shaped by chance and that humans don't really have an eternal soul, that death is our end. To the Epicurean, all that mattered was matter. His goal was to enjoy the here and now. Epicureans lived to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. They could have borrowed from Jesus' parable when the rich man stated his philosophy 
eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's how the Epicureans viewed life. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were the new agers of the day. They were the pantheists. Their leader was a man named Zeno. He lived and he taught around the same time as Epicurus. Zeno believed that God is in everything and that everything is part of God. He taught that life itself is the spark of God in the spirit of man. The Stoics felt that nature and circumstances were controlled by fate. They believed, what will be, will be. So rather than build a life, the Stoics' goal was to harmonize with his surroundings and accept the hand he was dealt. The Stoics were disciplined and austere and solemn. Emotion was their enemy. They lived a futile, unhappy life. They were victims of their circumstances. And it's no surprise that the first two leaders of the Stoics committed suicide. Warren Wearsby sums up Paul's task here in Athens. He says, the Epicureans said, enjoy life. The Stoics said, endure life. But it remained for Paul to explain how all men can enter into life through faith in God's risen Son. Well, verse 19, these Epicureans and Stoics, they took Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus. The word can be translated, Ares is rock. The Romans called the place Mars Hill. It was an outcropping of rock just west of the Acropolis, where the Supreme Council of Athens would gather. The leading philosophers would meet there to examine religious and philosophical matters. And here, Paul gets questioned, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. You know, in Athens, Georgia, football is king. It's the talk of the town. But in Athens, Greece, the most popular sport was philosophy. Apparently, the big men on campus were in the philosophy department. And the guys on the debate team, the Athenians tailgated before a big lecture. Well, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Athens had thousands of idols, but just in case one had been forgotten, just in case there was a God that they had missed, rather than offend him, they built him an altar. It proves a paranoia produced by polytheism. You know, it's interesting, the Athenian architects, they built altars to a pantheon of gods, but Athenian philosophers were largely agnostic. Plato wrote, It is hard to investigate and to find the framer and the father of the universe. And if one did find him, it would be impossible to express him in terms which all could understand. See, the Greeks acknowledged the necessity of a prime mover, of a universal first cause. There had to be a God, they said. But they saw this God as aloof and distant, impossible to know. 
And this left a huge vacuum in the Greek soul. Paul, though, draws on this hunger for God that the Greeks possessed. He uses the altar to the unknown God to proclaim to them the true God. He says in verse 23, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, this unknown God, I'm going to tell you who he is. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Remember, right above Mars Hill was the colossal Parthenon. It was a massive temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Athena. It still stands there today, in fact. And yet Paul says the real God needs no temple. It doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Heaven and earth is its temple, is his temple. Nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. In other words, the real God is self-existent. He's in need of nada. It's foolish to think the true God is dependent on human hands. He is the creator and the giver of all life. And here Paul is making a very contemporary argument. He's saying life doesn't evolve by chance. There is a creator. Philosopher G.K. Chesterton once said, evolutionists seem to know everything about the missing link except the fact that it's missing. The theory behind evolution is that given enough time, fish turn into frogs and frogs into birds and birds into monkeys and monkeys into humans. But if this were true, you would expect to find a fossil record littered with transitional forms like half fish and hybrid humans. But the missing links are all missing. I once heard a lady say, besides, if evolution really worked, if we really adapted and evolved upwards, by now moms would have three arms. (laughs) Don't buy into the idea that this perfectly ordered universe rose out of chance and chaos. Perfect design requires a designer. It's obvious to an unbiased mind that as the Apostle Paul put it, God made the world and everything in it. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Notice this, God created human beings with both unity and diversity. Humans are one blood, but we are grouped together in nations and we are given boundaries. See, the big downfall of the global village concept, the one world idea, globalism, a world with no borders, is that it's not biblical. Paul tells the Athenians here that God created people groups and then marked out their boundaries, the boundaries of their dwellings. In essence, God is in favor of walls. That's what he's saying. So you can't point to the Bible for proof of unbridled immigration. Borders are biblical. Borders are of God. In fact, in Genesis 10, God lays out a table of nations. You remember at the Tower of Babel, all mankind came together under one ruler. God broke up the globalists by confusing their languages. 
He scattered us into people groups. In the future, the Antichrist will rise to power on the back of global government. But nations and boundaries and jurisdictions are God's idea and are apparently necessary in a fallen world. The only truth that can bring people together is that of a common creator. One God made us. Thus, we all need to seek that God. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. We're restless until we find the God who made us. You know, it's interesting, Epicurus taught that God is distant and unattainable. But here, Paul quotes one of Athens' most famous philosophers, a man named Epimenides, who wrote, For in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, God is everywhere. God is not just infinitely high, but he is intimately nigh, and he's concerned for each of us. The true God wants to know us. And wants us to know him, and thus he's ready to reveal himself to us. Paul continues, For as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And here he quotes the Greek philosopher Aratus. Paul does what pastors do today here. He relates to his audience. He draws on some cultural references here to emphasize biblical truths. Aratus acknowledged that we all have a common creator. And so Paul explains, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now notice when Paul calls us the offspring of God, he's not teaching some kind of universal salvation. He's not suggesting that we are all born again. He's simply saying that as our creator, we derive our life from God. Paul is using a reverse logic here. You know, since we've been made in God's image, we can get an idea of what God is like by looking at us. I'm living. I'm personal. I'm knowable. And so is God. I'm more than just a chunk of flesh or metal or stone. I've been called a blockhead on occasion, but, but I'm alive and I'm knowable. And so is the God who made me. This is Paul's point. He's no idol. He's living and real and knowable. And Paul starts his conclusion in verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And Boy, how that stung these Greeks when he said these times of ignorance God overlooked. You know, the Greeks were proud of their history. They, they talked glowingly of the golden age of Pericles when Greek civilization was at its zenith. You know, even today we look back and we marvel at the sophistication of Greek culture. And yet Paul here refers to their hallowed history as times of ignorance. In other words, in what really mattered, God and God's truth, these Greeks were unenlightened. They were ignorant. And Paul tells them here that it's not time to debate. Debate is over. It's time to decide. For God is calling all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. 
He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. See, the city of Athens here is we're judging Paul. But one day, God will judge Athens and all men in righteousness. And in resurrecting Jesus, God was ordaining him as Lord and judge over all the earth. He tells us in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. It's been said an agnostic is a person who says that he knows nothing about God, and when you agree with him, he becomes angry. (laughs) People got mad at Paul because he told them the truth. And when he did, they scoffed at him, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. It was the notion of Jesus' resurrection that stunned the Athenians. You see, the Greek philosophers, they considered the human body to be evil. They, They considered it a prison for the soul. According to Greek thought, when the body died, the soul was set free from its fleshly cage to fly back into the oblivion from where it came. Thus, the idea of God resurrecting the body shook them up. In fact, it even halted Paul's message here. Some Athenians taunted Paul. Others of them tarried to hear more. But some took Paul up on the offer of eternal life. And so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This was not the response that Paul experienced elsewhere. There were just a few converts to Christianity here in Athens. He only mentions two. Dionysius was an Areopagite. In other words, a leading philosopher, one who held court there on the Areopagus. He came to Christ. A philosopher came to Christ. And then a woman, Damaris. And since proper Greek ladies seldom entered the male arena of Mars Hill, some Bible scholars think that Damaris was a prostitute. You know, it's interesting. The two named converts here in Athens were likely a philosopher and a prostitute. It proves that God saves both the down and out and the up and out. He can save them both. There were few that were saved in Athens, but that wasn't the case in Corinth, his next stop, chapter 18. For after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Now, ancient Corinth was the commercial center of the first century. 200,000 people lived in Corinth, but it was notorious for its unbridled evil. Every vice known to man found a home in Corinth. In fact, whenever a Corinthian was shown in a Greek play, he played the drunk. In fact, to play the Corinthian meant to party hardy. A Corinthian girl was another name for a prostitute. Romans 1, when we get to Romans 1, we'll study it thoroughly. But in Romans 1, Paul spotlights the moral and the spiritual depravity of a society that has divorced itself from God. And when Romans was written, guess where Paul was? He was in Corinth. This city was his inspiration. In fact, on top of the mountain above Corinth was a temple dedicated to the fertility goddess Aphrodite. And each night, a thousand temple priestesses or prostitutes would flood into the streets 
and ply their trade. Corinth was the bourbon street of its day. It was a cesspool of lewdness and depravity and perversity. And yet, it's amazing, this place turned out to be fertile ground for the spread of the gospel. Verse 2, And Paul found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. It's the Roman historian Suetonius who dated the Jewish expulsion from Rome to be 49 AD. It was the result of riots caused by a man named Christus. It's possible the gospel had made it to Rome by this time. And it was the preaching of Jesus as Christus or the Christ that caused the upheaval that Suetonius mentioned in his history. And it was because of that uprising that Aquila and Priscilla moved from Rome to Corinth. So because Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. Now, Paul was a pastor, but he supported himself with a secular job. In their yeshivas, the Jewish rabbis, they not only obtained theological training, but they also learned to trade. Paul's trade was tent making. And in Corinth here, he partners with his two friends, a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. So Monday through Friday, Paul was in the shop making tents. But on Saturdays, guess where he was? He was in the synagogue. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Paul was compelled by the Spirit, and he was encouraged by his two friends. Silas and Timothy had caught up to him. And you know, that's the one-two punch that God often uses. Paul's pals, Silas and Timothy, had finally reached him. And their fellowship with Paul emboldened his witness. And this is why Jesus sends us out two by two. Don't underestimate the influence of Christian friends. We also know that Silas and Timothy arrived with financial support from the Philippians, probably gave Paul a break from his tent making so that he could devote his full energies to the ministry. Because of Paul and Silas, I mean, Timothy and Silas's arrival, Paul feels fresh wind in his sails. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And this was always how Paul handled opposition. Rather than get shook up, he'd shake off. And he'd move on to those that were ready to listen. And this is so important for us. Don't, don't get hung up on the few folks who don't want to hear when there are people right around the corner who will be interested. Just shake it off and move on. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Isn't that interesting? Paul sets up shop right next to the competition. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. This is a major breakthrough in Corinth. The synagogue leader gets converted to Jesus. How cool was that? And then verse 9, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. 
Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, apparently in Corinth, Paul's courage had waned. Now, remember, he'd been beaten and run out of town everywhere he'd been, except Athens. When Crispus was converted, he knew that the Jews would grow desperate and they would resort to violence. But God fortified Paul's faith with two vitamins, his presence and his promise. And these are the two vitamins that God uses to keep us strong and healthy. Friends, God is with us. We have his presence. And he makes promises to us. One person counted over 7,400 promises in the New Testament. I suggest you claim a couple for yourself. Notice, too, God tells Paul, I have many people in this city. This is an amazing statement considering that Paul had just started his ministry there in Corinth. And this city was known for its unbridled wickedness. And yet God had many people there, even some that didn't know it yet. What an incentive to share our faith. God has many people in our neighborhood, many people in your office, many people on your team. Some of them may not know it yet, but God's got many people there. God already has them picked out. He's already called them his own. He's just waiting on you to share with them the gospel. Verse 11, and Paul continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. For 18 months, Paul taught faithfully the word of God taught the scriptures. And then and now, this is how you grow a strong church. You teach the scriptures. Later, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. I think in saying that, Paul was comparing his success in Corinth with his lackluster results in Athens. You know, the mighty Athenians had laughed off the gospel, while these lowly Corinthians had embraced it with all their hearts. Athens was too proud to admit their need for a Savior, but the sinful Corinthians, they jumped at the offer to know God and to receive his forgiveness. Verse 12 when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, which was the region surrounding Corinth, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, or the Bema seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Apparently, a new proconsul gave the Corinthian Jews hope that they might persuade the Romans to outlaw Christianity. But notice here their plan backfires. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if this is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Stern rebuke. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, that is, Crispus's successor, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. He turned a blind eye to the beating. Here's a photo of the actual, the actual judgment seat 
or the Bema seat there in Corinth where Sosthenes was flogged. The little pillar out in front was where his body was draped around and flogged. Evidently, the Jews in Corinth had few friends, so when the locals saw the indifference of their new proconsul, they decided to teach the Jews a lesson, and they rough up their leader, Sosthenes. They tie him to the town's whipping post and give him a good beating. And this makes 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, an intriguing verse. For Paul begins his later letter to the Corinthians, Paul called to be an apostle, and Sosthenes, our brother. It would seem that after getting beat up by the pagans in Corinth, Sosthenes put his faith in Jesus. It must have taken a beating to convince him to follow Jesus, which is what it takes for a lot of stubborn people to follow Jesus. Maybe not a physical whipping, but people have to get beat up financially or vocationally, or relationally, before they're willing to humble themselves and realize how much they need Jesus in their life. It takes a bruise or two before they're willing to follow. Perhaps Sosthenes was converted after his beating when Paul and Crispus came to minister to him. He had wanted them whipped. Instead, they now love him, and they forgive him, and they wash and bandage his wounds. Can you imagine that? Love melted Sosthenes' hard heart. The synagogue there in Corinth had a hard time keeping a rabbi in charge. They all keep getting saved. And so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, that is Antioch. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. Remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but again and again, he always wanted to win the Jews to Jesus. And here, he takes a Jewish vow in hopes of creating a platform where he can preach to them. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there, that is, Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them and said, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the most strategic cities that Paul would visit. It was at the heart of the empire. Its population was 300,000 people. But Paul's in a hurry here. He wants to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Ephesus will have to wait for his third missionary journey. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. It had been two years since he and Silas had left, and I'm sure his friends in Antioch were overjoyed to see him. But no grass grows under Paul's feet. In short order, he's out out again. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And this begins Paul's third missionary journey. Verse 24, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria, which was in North Africa, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In other words, Apollos was a Christian. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, 
And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, Apollos knew the gospel. And he knew the baptism of John or the need for repentance. But what he didn't possess yet was the baptism or the power of the Holy Spirit. He knew how to turn from sin. He knew how to turn to Jesus, but he just didn't know how to turn on the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of people like that. See, Apollos was eloquent. He was knowledgeable, but he lacked power. Like many believers today, his Christianity, it wasn't inaccurate and it wasn't insincere. It was just incomplete. And I like how Aquila and Priscilla handle the situation. They don't just go and confront him. They don't call him out publicly and embarrass him. They don't say something that would put him on the defensive. We're told they just pull him aside. They take him to lunch. Feed him a good sandwich. That kind of lowers the defenses. And then they explain to him what he's missing. And I'm sure before they were done, they prayed for him that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope you're full of the Holy Spirit. I hope you have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just enough to be a Christian and to have accurate faith or sincere faith. We need to have an empowered faith through the Holy Spirit. And when he, Apollos, desired to cross to Achaia, The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Again, Achaia was the region of Corinth. I suppose an apostolic transfer occurs here. Apollos went from Ephesus to Corinth, whereas Paul went from Corinth to Ephesus. And you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That was in Corinth. In Ephesus, it was the reverse. Apollos sowed the gospel, and Paul watered the seed. You know, at times we plow and we sow. At times we encourage and we water. But always the seed sprouts by faith. Through the faith that's in the life-giving power of God's Spirit. It's God who always supplies the increase, and it's to God that gets the glory. And so there we have Acts chapter 17 and 18. Would you join me in prayer?